back on air. Thanks for tuning in to the latest instalment of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. We're up to episode 18 now as we continue to seek out the cricketers who played in only one Ashes test. We started with Keith Slater, who played his one test against England in 1959, and you can catch up with his story and all those who followed him on Spotify, Apple and YouTube. The YouTube channel is particularly worth a look for bonus clips and features of all the players we've interviewed so far. We've told the stories of three of the four Musketeers who chose the 1985 Ashes series in England for their solitary Ashes duel, and today we'll tell the story of the fourth, Mr Dave Gilbert of New South Wales. If this podcast has a spiritual time and place, it is surely February 1971 at the Sydney Cricket Ground, the seventh test of that summer's Ashes series. We've had so many different perspectives on that game, You might remember Ken Eastwood, who hitchhiked to the SCG to replace the departing Australian captain Bill Laurie. And of course, it was the scene of Tony Dell's one and only Ashes test, the Vietnam War veteran who found himself opening the bowling with Dennis Lilly. And we've heard from the godfather of all modern-day baggy green captains, Ian Chappell, who began his reign as captain in that famous test match. And now we're about to find out how our latest guest fits into this fascinating Ashes matrix. A decent round of applause, please, as Dave Gilbert prepares to take the new ball. Dave Gilbert was a right-arm fast bowler for New South Wales, Gloucestershire and Tasmania. He took 354 first-class wickets at an average of 32.39, with 11 five-wicket hauls and one 10-wicket match. He played in 14 ODIs for Australia and nine tests, including his one Ashes test in the sixth game of the 1985 series. Dave, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thanks very much, Graham. What are your first memories of Ashes cricket? Pretty vivid, actually. It was the 1970-71 series uh, when Jon Snow hit Terry Jenner in the head with a, a bouncer. Uh, which led to Ray Illingworth taking the English team off the field. So I was 10 years of age. My father took myself and my brother to the match. And uh, we were actually down in the corner of the SCG where Snow came down at the end of his over, having hit Jenner in the head and Jenner had to retire hurt. And Snow came down towards the fence and he was wearing one of those old sort of uh, Terry Towling hats and uh, as he got closer to the fence, you know, the crowd was booing him uh, uh, big time. And Snowy took his hat off and started sort of waving it like he was conducting an orchestra. And that was cue for the uh, crowd to then pelt him with beer cans. <laughs> so all of a sudden, the 10 metres in from the fence just became a sea of empty beer cans. Ellingworth, you know, seeing this, uh, sort of clicked his fingers and took the team off the field. So we had this crazy situation where the umpire stood in the middle of the ground for about 10 minutes trying to work out, you know, what to do. And then eventually they went into the English dressing room and said, unless you come back out onto the field, um, you will forfeit this match. And then years later, when I was involved with Sussex, John Snow was on the committee at Sussex and I got to know him very well. And Terry Jenner used to do some spin coaching for us at Sussex. So we got the two of them together and had a big corporate lunch, I think at the Metropole Hotel in Brighton. We got about, you know, two, 300 people and the two of them retold the story. It was a great afternoon. So you would have been, what do you say, about 10 during 10, that test 10 years mark. of age. So that's where it started. How did your path into competitive cricket begin? So I started in Shires cricket at uh, 15 or 16 I played there for about three seasons until I was about 18, 19. And then a chap who was on the committee at the Shires was also on the committee at a, a grade club side. And he said, you should give grade cricket a try. And it sort of went from there. Who was that for then? Uh, so I joined a club called Sydney. It's not the Sydney team that is currently in the Sydney competition. Uh, this team was based sort of in the inner east of Sydney, a suburb called Rushcutters Bay. Yeah, I was taking lots of wickets. Um, and then that's when I got a letter from the then state captain, Dirk Wellham at Western Suburbs, who said, you know, you should, uh, you should come to a better club. 
and come and play for Western Suburbs. And when you get a letter from the state captain <laughs> saying, come and play for my club, um, I think that that doesn't need too much persuasion. The likes of the late, great Alan Davidson, Bob Simpson, Michael Clark, Mitchell Stark, Phil Hughes, Dirk Wellham. It's an absolute uh, who's who of Australian cricket who have played there. So how did the opportunity come about with New South Wales? Because you were, what, about 23 when you made your debut for them? Yeah, so my first game for New South Wales, I was 22. I was put into the state squad. In those days, when you went to practice at the SCG, there was a bit of a hierarchical system. You know, you had the the big names in the squad and then you had the, the also-rans like myself. <laughs> and it was a case of uh, be seen and not heard and you got thrown a ball and go and bowl for three hours and uh, you won't get a bat, keep your mouth shut and uh, go home at the end of it. Mm. So, you know, I was happy to do it. All of a sudden, you know, I'm bowling to, you know, Rick McCosker and a, a John Dyson and a Trevor Chapel and a Dirk Wellham and guys that I'd only seen on TV. I enjoyed that. And then um, there was a tour match, New South Wales playing Pakistan. There was a spate of injuries in the team leading into it. I think uh, Jeff Lawson got ruled out with an injury. The night before the game, I got a phone call saying, um, you're in. So, I, you know, I was absolutely... Uh, gobsmacked barely slept a wink and you know, I think it was the first guy to the ground the next morning you know you all of a sudden you're walking into the the hallowed dressing room at the SCG you know where it hasn't changed since you know Victor Trumper was walking around in it I'm just taking it all in just completely in awe stupid me sort of didn't realize that uh, players have their favorite spots and I'd put my stuff down in a spot and gone out and done a couple of laps of the ground and by the time I came back into the dressing room, my stuff was gone and I looked up the end of the dressing room where there used to be a little single toilet cubicle and my cricket coffin was shoved down the toilet bowl. <laughs> so uh, I'd uh, made the fatal mistake of sitting in John Dyson's spot and uh, he thought that's where my case deserved to go. You know, w- welcome to the team. How'd you go in the match that day against Pakistan? Um, I got two wickets in each innings. I was pretty pleased. I mean, it was an absolute culture shock because... We batted first and got, well, I think we got sort of close to 400, so, or even more. Um, so we batted for about a day and a half. And I'm thinking, God, how good is this first-class cricket? You know, you put your feet up, fantastic. <laughs> and then the Pakistanis came in and they just, I don't think, were particularly interested in the game. So they came out with a devil-may-care attitude. And before you knew it, they were bowled out for only about 130 or 150 and then Rick McCosker, our captain, decided to enforce the follow-on, and then they finished four for about 400 in the second dig. So <laughs> we are in the field for the last two and a half days of the match. So at the end of the match, you know, my feet were just about falling off because I'd never been in the field that long, ever. In many respects, it was, a, it was probably the best introduction to first-class cricket to, to tell you uh, just how, how gruelling it can be. Brutal in the changing room and brutal on the pitch that day. (laughs) (laughs) And then your debut in the Sheffield Shield, was that against South Australia in the the December of 83? Yeah, my first Shield match was against South Australia in uh, Newcastle, which is about two hours drive north of Sydney. And, um, you know, got to play against guys like David Hooks and Rodney Hogg, Wayne Phillips. Yeah, I think that was your first wicket, wasn't it, Wayne Phillips? It was, yeah. They had to come in, I think, about for about half an hour before stumps. And, you know, Phillips had never seen or heard of me and maybe didn't take me too seriously and I I bowled him. I think he he got a bigger shock than me. And then that Australian winter, English summer, is that when you first came to England, 1984? I'd actually, my first time I went to England was 1982. Um, So it was before before I'd played first-class cricket. I played in the Essex League for a team called uh, Orsett and Tharrock. I don't, I don't think it's too far from a town called Grays. I did that on the recommendation of a chap I was playing club cricket with who'd been the season before, and he'd had such a great time, albeit that was the 81 series when Australia got smashed by both of them. And he, you know, being the, uh, the Aussie in England, he was absolutely uh, crucified by, uh, by all around him. But he had such a good time. He said, you've got to do it. So... I went and played in the Essex League and had a great time. And, you know, I just thought, you know, how good is this? I've, I've got to come back sometime. So 83, I didn't. But then uh, 84, I went uh, back to England. And that was after I had my first season of, of first-class cricket. And I played league cricket in the Yorkshire League for Harrogate. There was a chap playing in the team who's a bit of a legend in that part of the uh, world called Peter Kipax. 
who uh, made the Kipax bats. Peter had connections in the minor counties set up and uh, he got me matches with Lincolnshire. So I was playing for Harrogate on the weekend and for Lincolnshire during the week in the minor counties, which was fantastic. But it was a really good standard of cricket because you had a lot of cricketers in there who clearly had the game to play county cricket, but because of work commitments or they studied and pursued other endeavours, they never pursued the professional cricket route. And I, I, I remember there was a guy playing for Norfolk called Steve Plum who had a very, very good minor counties career and, and for mine was certainly good enough to play county cricket. But I think he ran a farm and there was, it, there was just no opportunity for him to pursue, pursue the professional cricket dream. What was it like off the pitch socially? Was it were the changing rooms as brutal as you found in New South Wales, or a, a bit more welcome? Uh, I, look, I I thought the Yorkshire people they were the nearest to Australians in terms of English uh, that I've met. I, I just thought the Yorkies, you know, were very straight straight talking. You knew exactly where you stood with them. Um, they told it as they saw it. No, fantastic. I, I had the time of life. I mean, Harrogate is a great. A great town. Um, I was living just on the outskirts in a village called Nairsborough. I was living with two guys, a fellow who actually went on to be quite a bigwig with the BBC called Adam Minot, and a chap called Chris Williams, who I think has gone on to become a judge in the sort of uh, Teesside area. So these guys weren't cricketers. Um, so to sort of share a place with them over that summer was brilliant. And also the thing about Nairsborough, which I could never get over, within a one-mile radius, there was something like 25 pubs. So uh, <laughs> we were never uh, never spoiled for, for, uh, for choice. No. You had a brilliant season, didn't you, for Lincolnshire that year? I think I got 40 wickets in seven games, which was uh, I was thrilled with. And then you come back to Australia, so that's the 84-85 season, and... Well, that's a big season for you then, isn't it? Obviously, you've got an Ashes tour at the end of it. So how, how would you summarise that season? Well, probably the, the biggest influence on my cricketing career happened that season because Imran Khan played that season with New South Wales. Um, he didn't play every match. I think he played, I'm going to say, six or seven out of ten. But his impact was dramatic to be rubbing shoulders with one of you know cricket's greats and learn off him was second to none he was incredibly helpful and willing with his time and advice and showing me um all the uh, tricks of the trade and you know in those days reverse swing which was still sort of in its sort of infancy in terms of you know people knowing how to bowl it you know Imran said if you don't swing the ball in Pakistan, you'll never get a wicket. The SCG wicket, as I mentioned previously, was a very dry, abrasive wicket, and it used to really cut the ball up very, very early. After 10 overs, sometimes, you know, know, there was barely any shine left on it. So Imran taught us all how if you loaded one side of the ball with a lot of sweat and perspiration and moisture, you could sort of weight the ball a bit like a, a lawn bowler with a bias. And so, uh, you know, we would sort of practice that and practice that. That culminated in uh, New South Wales uh, winning the Sheffield Shield final, where I think Imran got five wickets in the second dig and really yeah. set us up for victory. Um, I mean, that that five wickets in that second innings, I mean, that was just a masterclass of, of reverse swing bowling. But back to you, you were there at the end, weren't you the yes, guy who hit well, the winning runs? <laughs> I can say categorically the best game of cricket I ever played in. It ebbed and flowed for five days. Trying to pick a winner on that last day was was uh, nigh on impossible. Um, I think we conceded a first innings deficit of about 60. Imran managed to bowl, as I say, got five wickets. We bowled Queensland out for 160. So we had to get 220 to win. And 220 in those days at the SCG, that was a that's a big get because as I say, the wicket, the wicket was uh, got lower and slower and, and turned. And it was hard work. And at Stumps on day four, we were three for 60, chasing 220. And then the next day, you know, with every wicket that fell, the balance had tilted back to Queensland. Then we get a bit of a partnership going and it had come back to us. And I remember there was a camera crew there that parked themselves in front of our dressing room for a while. And then a few wickets fell. So they went down the other end of the (laughs) grandstand, the members stand and parked themselves in front of the Queensland dressing room to get all the reactions when the team won. 
in the end, they got so confused, they parked themselves in the middle and just kept panning both dressing rooms because they couldn't pick a winner. Yeah, it came down to, I think we lost our eighth wicket at 175 and Bob Holland, who, how the hell he was batting in front of me, I'll never know because he was an absolute rabbit. So Dutchie went in at eight for 175 with Peter Clifford, who was the last of the recognised batsmen. And they got to uh, about 210. And then um, that's when Carl Rackerman took the new ball. And with the first ball of the new ball, Dutchie got caught in the gully. And uh, so it's nine for 210. So I'm the last man in, 10 to win. And the thing that worried me the most, bizarrely, was as I'm walking out in a match earlier in the season, when we played Queensland at the Gabba, I'd been given the most horrid gobful by Greg Ritchie, who we end up going on the England tour together, but uh, Greg didn't mind sledging and really uh, telling you you were very unwelcome on the cricket field. And he'd given me an absolute gobful on that match. So I'm walking out to bat and all I'm worried about is the sledge and the mouthful I'm going to get from Greg Ritchie. So I walk in there, Alan Borders at short leg, Richie's at first slip, and I'm just waiting for it. And it's stone silence. I just think Queensland, they were more anxious and more worried about the result than anything else because Queensland, to that point, had never won the Sheffield Shield. So they were incredibly nervous themselves. So that actually gave me a lot of confidence because I'm thinking to myself, hang on, I think they're more nervous than me. Yeah, so it culminated in uh, Cliffo and myself getting the last 10 runs and winning the game. And uh, I bunted a ball through mid-off off Jeff Thompson, which went for three, and that tied the scores. And in those days, if you topped the table, which we did, the last wicket had fallen with the scores tied, we would have won because we finished top of the table. So that was the first ball of that over. And so scores are tied. We've won the game, regardless of whether we get another run or Peter Clifford got out and there were five balls left in the over. So all our, all the New South Wales boys are at the fence, just desperate to run out and celebrate. Cliffo then blocks the next five balls and we go into another over. So I'm on strike and Carl Rackham was bowling. And I just thought wherever this, if this is in my arc, I'm swinging like a rusty gate, which I did and I somehow connected and it went for four. So we won the game <laughs> and Carl Rackerman, who bowled unbelievably got I think he got six for 54 off, I think he bowled 30 straight. I mean, he was just unbelievable that day. And yeah. he was in tears after the game. It was so upsetting for him. What a game. How did you celebrate afterwards? Uh, massive. Um, Imran had a, a typical bachelor's pad back in the CBD of, uh, of Sydney. He hosted a party there and I, I'm still nursing a hangover from that, I reckon. Okay, so the 85 Ashes, how did you actually find out who, who contacted you to say you're on that tour? I think I got... I'm going to say 30 wickets that season. Um, so I was I was obviously in the frame, but I mean, I was still a long way down the pecking order. Mm. But then uh, that coincided with uh, the Rebel Tours to South Africa. So mm. all of a sudden, it was a bit like uh, Domino's. Um, they picked this original squad to go to England. And, you know, one by one by one, players kept dropping out saying, I've signed for South Africa. And a number of fast bowlers, um, Carl Rackerman, Rod McCurdy, I think John McGuire, Terry Alderman. So uh, that opened up massive opportunity for me. But the way I found out was it was only about three or four days before the team was scheduled to leave. And I got a phone call from the then CEO of what was called the ACB back then, the Australian Cricket Board. You know, David, uh, Graham Halbish here. Um, oh, hi, Graham. You know, I probably met him once before. Um, and his first question to me was, have you signed to go to South Africa? Because the tour was coming out in dribs and drabs and different players were sort of admitting they'd signed, but they didn't, ACB didn't know at that stage the entire list of names. So his first question to me was, have you signed to go to South Africa? And I said, no. And he said, well, you're, um, you've been chosen as a replacement for the Ashes tour. Let's say this was a Monday. He said, the team leaves on Thursday. Do you accept? And I said, <laughs> yes, I'll be there. So that, that, that was it. I mean, you know, you put the phone down and you're just in an absolute utter state of shock. Would you have gone on that South Africa tour if you'd been asked? No, no. Um, I was very indirectly approached, but at that point in my career, my absolute focus was to play for Australia. And um, no, I, I wouldn't have done it. 
you get the call on the Monday. I'm on a plane seemingly the next day down to Melbourne, which is where the team's yeah. assembling. And then that's when all hell started to break loose because we had four players who had signed for South Africa but had then withdrawn and rejoined the establishment. And that was Graham Wood, Wayne Phillips, Dirk Wellham and Murray Bennett. So those four guys had originally signed to go to South Africa but then had uh, all withdrawn and come back to the establishment. So when we got to Melbourne, there was huge discontent amongst some of the senior players, and they being Alan Border, Kepler Vessels, Greg Ritchie, about, in their eyes, players having their cake and eating it because mm. I think the view was they must have been given some sort of inducement to withdraw from South Africa and to go on the on this Ashes trip. So it culminated in like a kangaroo court session where one by one these guys uh, had to front the rest of the team. And the first question was, you know, what have you been given mm-hmm. by uh, PBL, which was the marketing arm of Kerry Packer? Because obviously Packer had a huge interest in this because Channel 9 was, you know, his TV station and they were showing... Australian cricket, and uh, the last thing he needed was a weakened Australian team. So Willem, Phillips and Wood, to a man, said that they'd been offered a like a marketing role within the PBL organisation, and Murray Bennett actually had pulled out on moral grounds. He mm-hmm. had just had a, he'd had a change of uh, heart about the whole thing and didn't feel comfortable about going to South Africa with all the, the politics uh, of, of, of the time. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, um, it was really ugly. And as I say, it wasn't sort of how I envisaged getting selected for Australia <laughs> would be. So it culminated in a vote. Murray was exonerated very early in the piece because mm. everyone sort of accepted uh, his reasons for withdrawing. But the other three, there was a vote taken. And the vote was um, the tour didn't go ahead if those three if those three guys were in the team. Alan Border went downstairs to meet with ACB hierarchy and you know, was gone for a period of time. And then he came back up and said, the team leaves tomorrow, uh, see you on the bus, whatever time. So there was no explanation as to what had happened at that meeting he'd had <laughs> yeah. with uh, CB officials. Um, I suppose you can only guess as to um, whether something mm-hmm. was offered to Alan to sort of get him on side. How did you feel? Because did you feel that you you know, you deserve the vote almost because you'd only just arrived in the team. You know, you, you don't know all the, the mechanics of the team and what's going on behind the scenes. Or were you very much of the opinion that, no, they, you know, they can't have their cake and eat it. They shouldn't be on this tour. Oh, look, I, 36 years on, I'm still yeah. quite troubled mm. by, you know, the way I voted in that because I, I just felt the peer pressure forced me to vote the way I did. I voted for him off. It was unanimous. I, I don't believe I should have been put in that position given how junior I was in the setup. But, you know, when you're the new kid on the block and you're desperate to fit in and you're desperate to be part of the team, you know, what was I, 24? You're just not experienced enough to, to stand up and, and, and perhaps take an alternate view. So, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm disappointed with the way I reacted in that situation and you know it's a lesson learned and something that you know I was able to apply you know in later life I thought the explanations of the three that they've been given a marketing role stacked up and but I could you know the venom in the room was was palpable that there were a lot of guys that thought you know not only are you going to get your tour fee but you're going to get a a wadge of money from Kerry Packer as well so you know as you can imagine when we flew out there was a huge amount of animosity and discontent in the team, which just got worse as the tour went on. Yeah. Did you feel that had seriously endangered the team spirit of the entire tour? Oh, totally. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, it just it was just rumbling away from from mm. right from the time we arrived. You just knew that it, it just needed a couple of or a, a poor result that you know could derail the whole thing. Yeah. And to be honest, how we got to the end of the fourth test, 1-1, is stuff of miracles because uh, we were flogged in the first test at Headingley 
And then, you know, I must admit at the time, I thought, wow, you know, this could be a very long tour. <laughs> and then, unbelievably, you know, we were able to regroup very quickly and win at Lords. Alan Border got, I think, 196, uh, which was, you know, incredibly inspirational innings. And then Bob Holland, I think, got five for in the second dig of England's innings and we won the game. I mean, we almost copped it up. I think we had to chase about 130 and got it six down. Yeah. But to all of a sudden bounce back to one one after two, you know that that gave us you know a lot of a lot of heart for the rest of the series. Yeah, and what about from your perspective? What was it like playing in some of the tour matches? Any that particularly stick out in your mind? Yeah, look, I, you know, I loved it. I mean, that, it's so sad that nowadays an Australian team's tour of England will never be the same. I mean, back then we arrived in April and we didn't leave till middle of September five-month tour and you got to play 15, 16 county games. Um, yeah. So you got to see all the grounds who – it was fantastic. You know, getting to play against – like uh, I had a good game against Essex. I think I got seven wickets in the game and, um, you know, Essex played a pretty much a full-strength side and, and they were sort of probably the top team in English cricket at the time, you know, because you had – Gooch and, uh, you know, Ken McEwen, the South African, and Neil Foster, and was, I think it was Norbert Phillip was his name, he was a West Indian fast bowler, and, you know, David East and David Ackfield, you know, it was a, it was a great side. So that was a terrific game of cricket. We, uh, we were looking like losing the game, and I got four wickets in the second dig, and, and it ended up being, a, I think Essex finished eight down, and it was a draw. And I think that's where my stakes really rose in terms of getting a, a test match. Was it pleasing performing in that match, considering you had played in Essex before? And was anyone there that you still knew from your time there? Yes. Well, um, uh, one of the batters for, or two of the batters for Essex, one was Paul Pritchard, mm -hmm. who I'd played with at Borset in 1982. He was a 16-year-old then. So in 85, Pritch was 19 or might, might have been 20. And there was another guy called Chris Gladwin who played for one of the club sides in Essex. So I played a, a fair bit against Chris. So I knew those guys from the Essex League days, and I, I think I got both of them out. Uh, so that, that was great. And, yeah, there was special incentive to do well in Essex because I, I, I remember I got taken down when I was playing for Orsett in 82. I got taken down to the county ground. I saw the Essex team training and had a look around Chelmsford and, you know, was just so really impressed by everything and I thought wow it'd be great to play here one day sure enough three years later there I was what was your favorite ground apart from that in those warm-up matches really like Chesterfield that was that's a beautiful little ground Chesterfield very picturesque I can tell you the grounds I didn't like right. yeah <laughs> I reckon they should blow up Neath I hated Neath I mean that, <laughs> that was that was like bowling on plasticine and two great Welshmen uh Javed, me and Dad and Eunice Ahmed put us to uh, <laughs> put us to the sword. Javed got two hundred and ten not out, and Eunice got a hundred and plenty, mm. and I got none for ninety nine off about twenty overs. And if I never see that neath ground again, it won't be a moment too soon. Were you twelfth man for any of the the first five tests? Yeah, so I was. I was. Um, I was nowhere near selection for the first test. Nowhere yeah. near selection for the second test. So we go to Trent Bridge for the third test. I'm told the night before I'm in, I'm playing. You can imagine how nervous I was and I've made phone calls back home. You know, I'm in the team. You know, we have the team talk and all the tactics are being spoken and the whole time Alan Border's talking, he's just staring at me as if, don't get this wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried about, about making sure I, you know, can, can comply with the captain's orders. And then um, in the morning... We're doing the warm-up and uh, it was almost as if I had leprosy. All of a sudden, uh, AB was avoiding me like the plague and I wasn't sort of, you know, the, the main net that had been set up for the guys playing in the game. I wasn't required. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And then uh, just before AB was about to go and toss, he uh, all of a sudden he starts walking towards me and I thought, well, here we go. And he said, uh, he was very short and to the point, he said, um, We've changed our mind. Uh, we're going to play Woody, Graham Wood. We're going to play the extra batter. Um, so uh, you're not playing. And then he just walked off. So that was incredibly deflating. So um, I was the 12th man 
for that match. And then as it turned out, Graham Wood got 176. <laughs> so uh, AB and, and, the, and the selectors will say they got it right. So we drew that test. We then went to Old Trafford. I was 12th man for that test, which we drew. So as I say, we're one, one after uh, four tests. And then again, there was a bit of a break between the fourth and the fifth test. And uh, Jeff Thompson, who'd played the first test of the series and got smashed. And Tomo was like myself. He, he was called up at the last minute um, because of all the South African defections. And Tomo at the time was 35. So, you know, he, he, he was at, definitely at the tail end of his career. And so after the first test, he hadn't been cited. You know, he was never in the frame for the, for the second, third and fourth tests. And, and then um, Greg Chappell, who was one of the selectors, he wasn't in England at the time. You know, he would obviously was in Australia and would be part of telephone conversations. Greg Chappell flew into the country and Tomo from sort of nowhere all of a sudden was jettisoned into the team for the fifth test from what I understand, to be at Greg Chappell's urging. I always think there was a little bit of a conspiracy to this as well because Tomo at the time was on 199 test wickets. Tomo came in, played the fifth test, and so I went from being 12th man in the third and the fourth test to completely out of the 12 for the fifth test, and Tomo plays. And I remember going to Jeff Dimmick, who was the team coach, and uh, I said, mate, you know, no one's explained to me what's going on here. I said... You know, it was 12th man for the third, 12th man for the fourth. A fast bowl has been brought in over the top of me to play and I'm completely out of the 12. What, why is that? And he just said, don't ask me, go and ask Greg Chappell. And I, I just thought, well, I'm wasting my time because mm -hmm. um, their mind was made up. So we got smashed in that match big time. That's when I think Gower got a double century and uh, I think Robinson got a big hundred. And Richard Ellison had come into the team and he, you know, he swung the ball around corners and uh, Ellison just, just murdered us. We're 2-1 down. We then go to the Oval and um, out of the blue, I get told, you're playing. By this stage, I don't know whether I'm Arthur or Martha. And then Tomo was dropped for the last test. So, uh, so who um, told you you were in for the sixth test? By that stage, I can't remember, Graham. It, it, no. it, was, it was just becoming... The way in which selections were being communicated was just so chaotic. I just, I was just obviously pleased and grateful that I was playing. We had to win to retain the Ashes. We bowled the first day on a really flat oval pitch, and I got to know the oval well when I worked for Surrey for a couple of years, 10 years later, and uh, I just know how flat those wickets can be, and it was a really flat wicket, and it was a very hot day too. I reckon it had to be mid-30s. And uh, Graham Gooch and David Gower just put us to the sword. And it yeah. stumps, I think it was three for 350 or thereabouts. And I walked off the field. I, it was like a remake of The Longest Day. It was just, I, I just remember thinking, I just can't cut it at this level. I, I, I just never felt so, so uh, inept the way Gooch and Gower batted that day. You did take one wicket, didn't you? The aforementioned Richard Ellison. You had caught by Wayne Phillips. Well, um, at Stumps on day one, I've gone to uh, I've gone to uh, back to my hotel room with the the figures of sixteen overs, none for eighty eight. So you could imagine I'm thinking to myself, test taboo, I'm going to record the worst ever figures by a debutant. I was in a really anxious and not thinking clearly. And my my roommate for a lot of that tour was Greg Matthews. And Greg and I are good mates. We've known each other since school days. And Greg uh, could see just how, how I was battling. And he said, mate, we're going out tonight. You're going to take your mind off cricket. and We're just going to go out and have a good time. And we went out. We made it into a pack not to talk about the day's play. Had a few beers. Had a great night. And it was the best thing that could have happened. So um, I managed to get some sleep. Day two, Graham Gooch is 190-odd not out overnight. And then unbelievably... Um, very early in the piece, Craig McDermott bowled a sort of a warm-up full bunger that Gooch just hammered straight back to him and McDermott stuck his hand out and he's out. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, <laughs> and then um, from that, England collapsed. So they went, they lost their last seven wickets for about 60 runs. So yeah. I think I've got five overs the next morning, one for eight. 
uh, including, as you say, Richard Ellison caught behind. So I've, I've seen footage of it. I, I just didn't even, I just didn't even sort of show any emotion or joy or anything. I, it was just relief. I just yeah. thought, wow, well, you know, I've got a test wicket. So looking back, I mean, what do you think about it? I mean, obviously you've been picked to play for an Ashes tour, but as you said, the commu- well, the first you had the Rebel tour, then you had the communication towards you and, you know, people being brought in ahead of you when, you know, the pecking order seemed to go out of the window. You finally get your chance. What, what are your thoughts at the end of that series then? Look, brilliant, I've played an Ashes test, or is it tinged with a bit of disappointment that the tour wasn't run in a better manner? Oh, look, I have to be brutally honest. It was a deflating experience. Mm. Um, it wasn't what I thought an Australian tour of England would be in terms of how it would be run. But in terms of the experiences, you know, getting to play the county grounds and just experience English cricket over five months, you know, that was something I, I would never swap. The whole thing was was set off by, as I say, that the kangaroo court meeting we had mm. in Melbourne before we flew out. And that, unfortunately, that bad blood that was in that meeting went with the team to England and it, it never left us. And and it, it, it just was it's a terrible shame that, um, you know, we, we, we couldn't sort of get past that and put it to one side and just say, look, you know, we're representing Australia. Let's put personal concerns and issues to one side and, and play as a team. But You played nine tests for Australia and 14 ODIs. So this was only the start of your international career, you know, once that series was over, it was back to Australia and then you had New Zealand and India, didn't you? So did, were you expecting to, to feature in that Australian summer? I was, yeah, because I thought, um, because the Rebel Tours actually went for a couple of years. So those yeah. guys that had gone, they were signed up for another year. So they, and of course they'd been, I pretty much think they had been immediately banned mm. from ever playing in, Australia again um, because of what they did but you know later on those bands lifted so those guys were out of the picture for the Australian summer of cricket so yes I, I thought that the opening attack for that first test against New Zealand the gavel was going to come from the tour group and it did um, it was Jeff Lawson Craig McDermott and myself the problem for us was we ran up against the rampant Richard Hadley who got 33 yeah. wickets in three tests I mean he was just unplayable. I know New Zealand are going very well these days, but I reckon that Kiwi team in the mid-'80s was one of their best. Uh, when you think the Crow brothers, um, you know, John Wright, uh, Bruce Edgar, you know, Ian Smith, you know, Hadley, Chatfield, Snedden, Bracewell, John Reed, Jeremy Coney, of course, as captain, who was a very, very good captain. And so we, we copped New Zealand probably at, you know, one of the best teams that they'd fielded. And when you've got someone like Hadley, who was in absolutely rare form at the time, and Coney managed him magnificently, it just seemed like Hadley was bowling all the time. Mm. But, of course, he wasn't, but it was just how he used him. So there was just no let-up. And then you had a guy like Chatfield at the other end who could land it on a five-cent piece. You know, we were still scarred from England. The batting was still fragile. Um, poor old Andrew Hilditch had a real problem with hooking. He got caught hooking, uh, I think, in both innings of that test match and never played again. Kepler Vessels announced at the end of that match that he was going back to South Africa. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it was, again, quite difficult times for Australian cricket. So we yeah. lost that series 2-1. And then um, we had a three-test series against India. Again, it was a very, very good Indian team. Uh, but we managed to draw that series. And I think that, you know, we were lucky. There's no doubt about it. We, we drew a test in Melbourne due to the uh, rain. India had to get about 120 to win the game. And they were, you know, a couple down for 50 when the rain came. And that saved us. But I think drawing that series, all of a sudden, you just felt mm-hmm. that was the turning point in terms of we'd sort of reached our lowest ebb. Mm-hmm. And uh, that also then coincided with Bob Simpson coming on board as the coach. And that's when the things turned around. Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the match of the MCG against India, which you played in. I think you missed the first test, didn't you, against India? And then you played that second. Yeah, so the first test in Adelaide, I was injured and I had to pull out. And that, that gave a debut to, uh, I think, Merv Hughes. Lucky uh, for Australian cricket, I got injured, I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
But then you came back in for Merv for the second one, didn't you? So, That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Merv, I think Merv's figures in his first test weren't particularly flattering. I'm going to say one for 120 or 30. Um, yeah. I think Gavaskar got a big hundred. And, yeah. I mean, Adelaide's a flat wicket at the best of times. So, yeah. um, you know, India got a lot of runs. And as I say, Melbourne, that, that was a, that was Steve Wars debut, the Melbourne yeah. test. So uh, there was a lot of, because I think Bruce Reed uh, came in for the Adelaide test. So it was interesting that Reed, Hughes, Steve Waugh all debuted in that series, who then went on to become hugely influential figures in Australian cricket. And do you remember getting the two Indian openers out, including Gavaskar? I do. The ball that bowled Gavaskar, I, I, you know, I was thrilled. It went between bat and pad. I remember someone saying to me after the game, you know, Gavaskar rarely gets bowled. And especially between bat and pat, that was a huge, um, a huge thrill. I got Shrikanth out early. Well, when I say out early, got caught hooking, caught at fine leg, only for it to be a no ball. But he he got a few more, and I think I got him LBW. So they were my two wickets. And so then your final appearances for Australia again came against India on the tour to India in eighty six seven. Yeah, Very there long- was a tour before that to New Zealand. And that was Bob Simpson. Simo had gone as uh, an observer. He had uh, apparently written a, a paper to the ACB and said that he felt that he could offer Australian cricket a lot and that he should go on this tour as an observer and then come back and uh, give his report on where things are at. And my understanding is the report was scathing to uh, the culture in the team and what needed to change. On the back of that, Simo was appointed the coach for the Indian tour. So was that a happier tour, the, the Indian one? Yes, much happier because yeah. Bob Simpson brought structure and discipline to the way we did things. I mean, fielding sessions, for example, whilst they were torturous, <laughs> they were all done with absolute focus in mind to make us um, the best fielding team we could be. I remember Simo saying we may not be the best team in the world talent-wise, but, you know, by God, we'll be the best fielding team. So, yeah, it was a, a lot happier. And as I say, when you've got structure, when you know how everything's mapped out and there's a plan and there was just no more sort of feeling like we were flying by the seat of our pants, you know, to go to India, which is an absolute culture shock in terms of, you know, how the population, you know, some people live in the poverty that they have to endure and then, absolute you know super wealth i mean it was just such a a a country of extremes in so many regards so you know it was a a great tour off field in terms of just learning all that and and experiencing it but it was also a great tour on field because you know we were playing a very good indian team in their backyard and being able to compete was a lot of fun and you didn't actually play in that first test did you but that was one of only two tied test matches in the history of cricket, even though you weren't playing. What, what are your memories of that match? Yeah, unbelievable. Um, I was the 12th man for that test. We were playing at Madras, which is nowadays Chennai. Wherever we flew from to get to Madras for the match, we were on the same plane as the Indian players. And we were walking out the tarmac to the plane. And I remember Vensaka turned to me and he said, have you ever been to Madras before? And I said, no. And he said, uh, you won't know what's hit you. I'm thinking to myself, what's all that? Anyway, so we, we get there and, you know, like it's just you know, stinking hot, oppressive humidity. You know, you're just sweating buckets uh, seemingly 24-7. We go to the stadium, it's like a concrete bowl just radiating this heat. So it was probably a good, <laughs> probably a good test not to play, but... Uh, <laughs> Craig McDermott, who prided himself on his fitness, he used to do a lot of training with, we have a, a sport here called Ironman, you know, where guys do all sorts of swimming and kayaking and surf-related activities. And Craig used to train with uh, the Ironman in, in uh, Queensland, where he's from. So he was very, very fit. And then for Craig, after four overs, to basically just be completely and utterly exhausted and couldn't bowl another over, it sort of gave me an idea this must be unbelievable. So we back first. Dean Jones gets a unbelievable double century in the worst, as I said, the worst conditions possible. And Bob Simpson came out and said, 
in all the cricket he'd been involved with was the gutsiest innings he'd ever seen, which is high praise indeed for, from Simo. And Jonesy, you know, when he finally got out, spent the night in hospital on a on a saline drip. He was just so dehydrated and exhausted. So we, I think we got 570 or thereabouts. Um, India replied with about, you know, three, I'm going to say 370, 380. Border opted not to enforce the follow-on. Uh, we batted again and set them. And that was an interesting one. Going into the last day, we had an overall lead of just on 350. AB wanted to bat on. And Bob Simpson said, no, we've got enough runs. Uh, we're going to need as much time as we can get to win this and uh, managed to convince Alan to declare overnight. As it turned out, yeah, it went right down to the last hour. And, uh, you know, whilst we would have loved to have won a tie, it was almost as good. Well, absolutely. It's just so memorable, isn't it? Yeah, terrific match. And then you came back for the, the second test. These are your last test matches now for Australia. Did, did you think that they were going to be last test matches at the time? And how did they go for no, you? No. Um, well, the second test was at Delhi, and uh, that was heavily rain-affected. There was very yeah. little cricket played. I got Gavaskar out again, bowled him yeah. again, I think, between the gate. And uh, there was an Aussie photographer who years later uh, presented me a photo. Of, he actually got the moment where the stumps are broken. So that's one of my proudest possessions because I'm sort of, you know, in my follow-through and Gavaskar's stumps are, have just been hit that that was a huge thrill then we went to Bombay or Mumbai as it's known now again that was a draw a very very flat pitch and I was pretty pleased with Leo Bold I, I think I got none for 75 off 25 and you know Bruce Reed really struggled he he went for plenty and it, it just showed how difficult it was I mean it was real spinners wickets so when we came back from India I it was another Ashes series 86, 87, and I, I genuinely thought I was uh, a huge chance to play that first test, and I got uh, left out. That was that. Was that communicated to you, or were you just left to find out yourself? I, uh, it wasn't communicated. I uh, heard about it on the radio. After it had been announced, the media manager rang me and said, oh, um, you probably heard the uh, test team for uh, the first test. Uh, yeah, we, we were meant to get in touch with you. Um, but, uh, you know, there's there's obviously been a breakdown in communication. So, you know, mm. um, you know now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, look, that that was, that was, that hurt. Yeah, that, that was one I thought, you know, in terms of the guys they picked, you know, mm. Merv played, Chris Matthews, who was a left armour from mm. WA, played. And I think Reedy played, who, you know, I've got no qualms with. But, you know, I, I thought I deserved my spot ahead of Matthews. And um, we got smacked in, the, in that test. Both of them got a, a big 100. And then in between the first and the second test, New South Wales played England in a tour match. Myself and Mike Whitney bowled out England for 82. He got five wickets. I got four wickets. And um, we won the game. And so all of a sudden we were being spruiked by Bill O'Reilly, who was writing um, the column for the Sydney Morning Herald. Bill O'Reilly started spruiking that uh, myself and Whitney should play the second test, but neither of us was selected. And uh, that pretty much was uh, the end. Yeah, that's weird. I was going to ask you about that England touring game because I saw you performed really well in that. And it's just, uh, you know, the way the series was going for Australia, it just seemed like a no-brainer to bring you back. Why do you think it didn't happen? Um, look, I've got to surmise that I think my cards were marked. I think maybe a judgment call had been made that, you know, I, I wasn't up to it and that uh, there were better options. And, you know, I, I have to, I have to um, accept that and cop it on the chin. And, and, you know, I think that's where, you know, Simo was, you know, because not only was he coach, he was selector as well. And I think Simo, you know, made a call that there are better options. And, you know, I, I'm comfortable with that. I, I just wish that had been said to me face-to-face -face rather than sort of, you know, having to guess why you're not playing. You had another season for New South Wales and then you switched to Tassie. Um, how did that come about? Did you enjoy that period playing for Tasmania? Yeah, so my last season with New South Wales, I was 12th man for, I think, six out of 10 games. And the reason, as I mentioned earlier, was the SCG was very spin-friendly. We were playing mm. three spinners. We had Greg Matthews, Bob Holland, Murray Bennett. We had the War Twins who, 
back then were bowling pretty pretty good medium pace. And then we had Mike Whitney and Jeff Lawson as the opening bowlers. So a third quick wasn't mm. required. So I was 12th for six out of 10 games. You know, after a while, you get sick and tired of being 12th man. And so during that winter, Tasmania approached me and offered me the lead role as the opening bowler. And it was an offer too good to refuse. I mean, it, it really hurt to leave New South Wales because, you know, that was my home. That's where I grew up and always view myself as a, as a, as a blue bagger. But um, I just wanted to play. So I had four years in Tassie and loved every minute of it. It was mm-hmm. fantastic. It's where my first daughter was born in Hobart. You know, just great memories. And I did okay for them. Um, and as I say, I think that's what got me the, the offer from Gloucestershire in 91 because I'd had a, a good season or a couple of good seasons. And then Gloucestershire, out of the blue, contacted me. And I just thought, how good is this, you know, to play for, for Gloucestershire? And then to, you know, be in the same dressing room as guys like Jack Russell and Sid Lawrence. That was wonderful. I mean, two great characters. Mad as, mad as, as hatters. <laughs> but, you know, tough. Uh, hard competitors, you know, so beneath the eccentric exterior were very, very hard-bitten competitors. So great fun, loved it. That's what gave me the real passion for English cricket and, uh, you know, led ultimately to a a coaching role with Surrey in in 1996 and uh, and ultimately on to Sussex. We could go on and talk about Dave's hugely successful career in coaching and cricket administration, coach of Surrey and then CEO at Sussex, before Dave returned to where it all began for him as CEO of New South Wales. But the light is fading. We're going to have to call stumps on another episode. A big thank you to Dave for taking us through his cricketing life and times, from a 10-year-old in the crowd at the SCG in 1971 to wearing the baggy green in an Ashes test 14 years later via Orsett, Thurrock and Harrogate. An Aussie with a passion for English cricket. We've now completed our tour of the 1985 Ashes in England. Arnie Sidebottom, Jonathan Agnew, Murray Bennett and now Dave Gilbert, all inducted in the Once Ashes Hall of Fame. But don't panic, there are plenty more tales to be told soon enough. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. (laughs) 